1 Kings 17, and let's ask God's help as we come to his word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God who talks and speaks to us. And we pray again, Lord, would you speak? Would you help us to see uh, great things of you in your word and speak into our lives and into our hearts and make much of Jesus, we pray. In his name we ask. Amen. Have you ever asked the question, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Maybe there's something in your life that has happened and it just doesn't make any sense at all. And you think, God, where are you? What are you doing? Or maybe you look at the nation around and you see the state of things and how people are turning away from God and ignoring him and going their own way. And you think, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Maybe you look at your own work situation. You look at your family and you think, God, I'm on my own here. This is hard. What are you doing? You know, there's no other Christians around. What are you doing? Are you up to anything? Maybe you look at this nation. You think of Wales. You think of my stake and you think, well, a few generations ago, it wouldn't have been a surprise to, for anybody to be in church, would it? Most people you'd know on a Sunday morning would be in church or chapel. It's the, it was the acceptable thing to do. But now we walk up and down the valley and you see churches and chapels shut. You know, it's, just a, it's an unusual thing for people to be in church. And I, if you do a quick bit of maths of thinking of churches here in my stake that are open this morning, I think you'd find that there's probably less than 1% of people who regularly attend a church. Less than 1%. And you look at that and you think, God, where are you? What are you doing? Well, those questions are good questions to ask because they help us to wrestle with God who are you? What are you like? What, how do you work? And when we come to the book of 1 Kings, and as we're going to start looking at the life of Elijah, we see help um, in those kind of questions and those struggles that we have. Now, just to give a, a quick background into the book of 1 Kings, because we're jumping into the, uh, chapter 17, let's have a quick reminder of what's happened before. So God's people, remember, were slaves in Egypt, and God sent um, Moses to set them free. So God sent Moses, his, per, his, um, his person, to, to help and save them and rescue them. And God said to his people there, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to take you to a land. There is going to be a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is a, a place full of riches and full of everything you need to sustain life there. So God rescued them from Egypt and he took them through the wilderness and got them to the promised land. But as they were in the promised land, they were surrounded by other nations who worshipped other gods. And God said, worship me. I am the true God. I am the God who made this world. I am the God of all gods. Any other God is false. And what you'll see is as you look at other nations, they worship other gods and they end up doing horrible things. Trust me, I'm the true God. What did they do? They listened to the nations around them. They followed their gods so often. And so what would happen? God would say, well, if you don't want me and my blessing, don't have it. If you don't want this land, don't have it. And so God would allow other nations to come in. And what happened at first is they would call out to God and God would send a judge. People like Samson who would come and they would destroy the enemy and then they'd be starting again. But what would happen would be a downward spiral. Each time they'd turn away from God and worship other idols. 
The other thing that they saw the other nations had was the other nations had kings. And they said, we want a king. And even though God said, well, I'm your king, he allowed them to have kings. So they had King Saul, then David, then Solomon. And they were, you know, David and Solomon were the, the better of the kings. That's the golden age of the people of Israel. But after that, again, things got worse. They worshipped idols. The kings drew them away from God. And when we come to King Ahab, which is the king who was the king of the time of Elijah, we've really reached a low point. Because he was a terrible king. He didn't want to do what God wanted. He wanted to do the opposite. He wanted to encourage people to worship the, another god called Baal. And he married a lady called Jezebel. And it made a lot of political sense for him to marry Jezebel. She was from a nation next door. And so it would have been good for trade, good for business, good for all of that kind of thing. But actually, for their spiritual life, it was spiritual suicide. Because here now you have this couple at the top who wanted to destroy any worship of the true God and wanted everybody to worship Baal. So here, um, God's people were being drawn into rejecting him and worshipping Baal. And the worship of Baal was a horrible thing. The worship of Baal, to worship Baal, you would, um, one of the things would be they had temple prostitutes. So to, to worship Baal, you'd go and use the temple prostitutes. Or you'd sacrifice children. And those things were demeaning to people. They weren't keeping the sanctity of, uh, of life. And you could see it just was horrible and dark. And God said, what are you doing? Worship me, the true God, the life giver, not the one who drags life away. So here, here he is. Um, God's people, the King Ahab is, is, is dragging God's people away from God. Now you could easily ask the question here, couldn't you? God, where are you? What are you doing? Ahab is this terrible, evil king. And he's in control and he's ruling your people. What are you doing? And as we come to this passage and ask that question, let's look at five truths about how God works that's going to help us to orientate ourselves in times when we're wondering, God, what are you doing? Okay, this is how God works. He works the same in Elijah's time as he does today. So how he works will help us um, to, to find our way through. Often when we find ourselves in times of trial, it's disorientating, isn't it? We feel all over the place. So here's five truths about God to hold on to in the midst of these times. The first is this. God is never unprepared. I'm sorry for the double, double negative, but it just works better with words that we can remember, okay? God is never unprepared. Verses 1 and 2. So chapter 17 should be a bit of a jolt for us. Because we've just been hearing about the kings and how terrible they've been. We meet King Ahab. We hear about the dire spiritual state of Israel. That they don't care about God anymore. They're worshipping the gods of other um, nations. The God of Baal. And then we meet in verse 1. Elijah. Elijah comes. And out of nowhere he appears. We're not told much about him at all. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. We don't know anything about his parents or anything about his family, but suddenly appears this man, a prophet called Elijah. What was a prophet's job? A prophet was somebody who would speak God's word to his people. A prophet was somebody who spoke God's word to his people. But up until now, God's people haven't heard him. But here was in, waiting in the wings, as it were, Elijah, ready to step onto centre stage. Ready for God to use him. Ready for God to use him to speak to the king and to speak to the people. Now, as Elijah speaks, look what he says in verse um, 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except 
by my word. He was speaking God's word to God's people and to the king. Now, it sounds a bit like he's predicting the future there, doesn't it? There's going to be no, I predict there's going to be no rain. But he wasn't predicting the future. Elijah was actually saying, God has said that if we turn away from him, this is what's going to happen. So in Deuteronomy 28, it said this, if you trust, God says, if you trust and follow me, you will know my, my presence and my help. But if you turn away from me, then I will leave you. Instead of blessing, there'll be curse. And to show that curse, there will be drought. There'll be famine. I'll take the blessing away. Why? In order to get your attention, to win you back. So whenever God brought these judgments on his people, it was in order because he loved them and he wanted to bring them back. So they weren't listening. So he said, right, I'll get your attention by stopping the rain, by bringing drought so that you would come, turn back to me and cry out to me again. Interestingly, Baal was the god of fertility, growth, life. And so if there's no rain and there's no harvest, who looks the stronger God? You see, God is making a point here. So Elijah comes and he says, there's going to be no rain. Because this is what God said he'd do. And he's following through with it. Now, how does this verse, these verses help us today? Well, look at what it's showing us. It's very easy for us to think things are out of control. There is no hope spiritually for um, us in this land or in this world. But actually, here we see um, people were ignoring God then. People were mocking God then, just as they seem to be doing today. And yet, God isn't flummoxed. He's not knocked for six. He isn't caught off guard. He knows exactly what's going on. And he had ready to bring in Elijah, just at the right time to speak God's word to his people. God is not taken by surprise. Now, we didn't know that Elijah was about to turn up. We didn't know that ready to go was him there. But Elijah was put there so that at the right time, he could remind God's people, look, this is what's happening here. This is what God is doing. The drought has come in to remind you to turn back to God. So today, God isn't surprised by the situation we find ourselves in. He knows what's going on. Not only does he know, but he's prepared He's ready and waiting to sort it out. Now, we can think of that nationally in our country, in our nation. God knows what's going on and we can trust him. Who knows what's going to happen and what's just around the corner? He's never unprepared. He's always prepared to help and to bring hope into our situation. Now, nationally that helps, but also think of your life. Maybe something's happened recently. You think, what is going on? Why has that happened? Why is this happening? The good news is this morning, God hasn't been caught off guard. God isn't going, oh, I didn't see that coming. But God knows what was going to happen and he has got the future sorted. Now, as we think of that, it doesn't sort out all our problems, does it? It doesn't take away all the heartache and pain. But to know that, wow, God knows and he's ready. There's hope in the midst of our confusion. Because God is never unprepared. Now when we think of that in the storyline of the Bible, when we think of how that helps, points us to Jesus. You know, at the end of the Old Testament, which we're getting to in our Bible overview, there's 400 years of silence from God, where God doesn't send a prophet, where it's just quiet. And they must have been wondering, God, what are you doing? But then we see God had someone prepared. Somebody very much like Elijah. We're going to see Elijah is quite an oddball, quite strange. 
And who is the strange prophet that God sent? He sent John the Baptist. Who everybody looked at him and said, what are you wearing? Camel skin, eating locusts, you know, lived in the desert, probably had crazy hair. Thinking, what? And he sent John the Baptist to say, somebody's coming. Actually, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who we've been, God's been preparing for all along. The, the, the history isn't spinning out of control. God has brought it about to at this very moment. Uh, the king of the universe is now walking amongst us. He's come to live the life we couldn't. He died the death we deserve. He rose again and ascended to heaven. And one day he will return. Jesus is coming back. God is in control. God is never unprepared. Let's hold on to that hope this morning as we navigate our way through a confusing times. God, where are you? Remember, God is never unprepared. The second thing is this. God's ways are unexpected. So here, Elijah is just given God's word that they were waiting for. Might not be waiting for, but they were, they were, he was told, this is what's going to happen. This is what God is doing. And then what's, what happens? Uh, look at verses 3 to 9. God speaks to Elijah now and says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook of Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. So Elijah's told now, right now, Elijah, you need to go and hide. A strange thing to say, isn't it? He's God's prophet. He's bringing God's word. Why is he told to hide? Well, we might think, well, maybe it's because there's going to be a lot of tension around him now. You know, maybe people will be after him, and so he's told to go away to protect him. But actually, I think it's more this. Part of God's judgment on his people is to remove his word. Now, he said what's happening. The next thing now is you need to listen. You need to turn. And so he's removing God's word through his prophet away from his people. And God is not going to speak until they respond. That's a scary thing, isn't it? For God to be silent. His judgment on his people here. And we might think as we hear that, well, that doesn't make much difference to us. But just think for a moment you know, we've got God's word, haven't we? We've got the Bible. We don't need God to send prophets now because we've got everything he wants to say to us in his word and he wants to speak to us. And yet, how often can we go from day to day, from week to week, to month to month with the Bible closed without having listened to God's word? And he can be silent to us this morning as well. We need to be careful that we, have this, um, that we don't ignore what God wants to say to us. Let's pick up God's word this week. Let's read it. Let's absorb it. Let's think, what is God saying to me? He wants to speak. Let's not let God be silent in our lives. So Elijah is removed from the situation, taken away, and three really surprising things happen. Elijah hides, and while he's there, God says, I'm going to provide for you. If you want water, there's a brook. Help yourself. Go crazy. There's the brook. You can do what you want. And I've also arranged some food to be delivered. And it wasn't coming through Deliveroo or Just Eat. It was coming from ravens. Ravens are going to drop your food off every day. We don't know exactly what the food was, but they were going to bring. So God had his own kind of, you know, he's sending his messengers, his, um, these deliveries to come and feed Elijah that kept him going. Um, now, the strange thing about ravens was they were scavengers. They were unclean animals. And yet, God used these to provide him with meat and bread. So that's surprising. But then the next thing that happens is, verse 7, after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So because the rain had stopped, there was no more water coming in the brook. So he was getting thirsty. He was getting desperate. 
So he's taken to, verse 9, to Zarephath. You see, that's Zarephath. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, but Zarephath is the centre in the middle of where Baal was worshipped. This middle of enemy territory, as it were. It's the area where Jezebel is from, uh, inside them. So here he is going, the, the enemy, as it were, is going right into the enemy territory. It's a bit like um, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, going to uh, the Kremlin. You know, going right into the middle of it, where everybody kind of is looking out for him. So he's taken outside of God's land and taken into enemy territory. And here he is, he's desperate. So what does God say? He says, you're going to find a widow. See that in verse 9? I've commanded a widow to feed you. So a widow, um, back in the Bible times especially, were really vulnerable. They didn't have anybody to support them financially. They would be struggling. They were uh, vulnerable to being, um, uh, to being hungry and poor. You know, not today, maybe sometimes a widow might end up getting money from the deceased husband, but here they were exposed and they were desperate. That's why throughout the Bible, we're told that God loves the widow and the orphan, those who are vulnerable and needy, because he has, his heart is drawn towards them. So here, Elijah has nothing. And who is he told? Go and find somebody who's rich and affluent and they'll provide for you. No. Go to this widow, this poor, vulnerable, struggling widow, and she will provide for you. Now, it's strange. There's three unexpected things. So what does that tell us here? Well, God works in ways that we can never predict. I'm just saying, God works in ways that we could never predict. Ways that we could never see coming. And I think this point can fill us with real hope this morning. Because sometimes we limit God to the way we think he should work. So we look at our situation, we think, unless this happens, God isn't working. Unless God does this, then I can't see how we can sort this out. And we can only imagine or hope for him to work in the way that we can kind of foresee. But here is a wonderful truth, that God can work in ways we totally don't expect. In ways that can totally think, no way, you've done that. He can use people that we don't expect. He can use things or situations that we could never predict. So this morning, you could be feeling in a totally hopeless place. And you have tried your way to work out how to get out of your situation. And you just can't seem to see. Don't give up. Look to God, the God who uses the ravens, the God who uses a widow, the God who uses a widow who's not even part of God's people. He can use anyone and anything to accomplish his purposes. He can do amazing things. We just need to keep our eyes on him, to look and trust and be faithful to him. And let's expect God to surprise us. Say, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God, we don't know how this is going to work out, but we're trusting you. We can think of that as a church. Think, well, what is God going to do here? Let's keep our eyes on him and see what he does. Yes, of course we make plans. Of course we try our best. But as we do that, we just expect God to surprise us and keep alert for what he's, what he's doing. And as well in your life, God could do it in ways we don't expect. Somebody you never thought who could encourage you or be saved. Somebody who you never thought who could come and provide or help or encourage. We think of that in Jesus' life as well. God works in ways we don't expect. Because who would have thought that God could use a betrayal 
Who'd have thought that God could use a, a method of torture invented by Romans as the most painful, slowest way to kill someone? He uses these unexpected ways, and yet he uses this miscarriage of justice for his great purpose. That's how God works. So let's be expectant that he can work in our life as well. So God is never unprepared. God's ways are unexpected. And third thing, let's notice that God's provision is unwavering. Verses 10 down to 16. Elijah then goes to this widow's house. And as we expected, verse 12, and she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I've got these sticks that I can go home and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I'm about to bake our last meal. We've got nothing. The flour jar is going to be empty. There's going to be no oil left. That's it. So what does Elijah say? Verse 13 and 14. Elijah said, don't fear. Go and do as you've said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards make you something for yourself. So he says, go and make me something first, which doesn't seem to make much sense again, does it? Why would you do that? Surely I should look after myself and my son first. But Elijah says, no, trust me here. Make me something and then go make something for yourself. What does she do? Surprisingly, verse 7, she responds in faith, doesn't she? She went and did as Elijah did. And she and her household ate for many days. So she listens. God tells her to do something and she does it. And that's faith, isn't it? It doesn't seem to make sense sometimes. But God says, look, trust me here. Follow my ways and I'll provide. So she did this. And you can imagine the situation, can't you? She thinks, well, this is the last of the flour. She empties the flour in, last of the oil, mixes it round, makes her bread. And then she goes back the next day and she thought, oh, I thought it was empty, but there's more there. It's filled up. This is a miraculous God intervening here. More oil, more flour. Keeps them going. It keeps on coming. It keeps on refilling. And that God has provided every day for their need. Interestingly, it wasn't that God provided a big, big kind of bag of flour on the doorstep and a big jug of oil. There was just enough for every day. You see that principle throughout God's word. That actually God doesn't always say, here it is. Think of the, uh, the Israelites in the wilderness. Here's your manna for the next 40 years. Here it is. Keep it in the storehouse. No. God says, now every day I'm going to provide you with what you need. Every day I'll give you with what you have. And so God says sometimes to us, just trust me for today. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. I'll give you what you need today. So God calls us to live by faith. He calls us to listen to his word and then trust it. And sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense. Sometimes we can't see the, uh, what he's doing. But if we follow him and trust him, he will honour that. God speaks, uh, we listen, and then we follow. That's the simple life of faith. God, you've called me to do this, I'm going to follow. You know, this isn't a blind faith. Because God is the one who loves us. God is the one who sent his son Jesus to die for us. We know he loves us. We know he cares and he has our best interest at heart. And he says, just follow me and trust me. And his grace will be sufficient for every day. Remember, um, I know I mentioned Corrie Ten Boom last week, but something else she said that was full of wisdom as well. Uh, there was a time in her life where she was worried. She, she'd heard of Christians who were being killed for their faith. And she was worried that um, if the time came to it, that she wouldn't be able to stand up. Um, if somebody said, you know, do you believe in Jesus? And 
uh, and would end up in prison or end up being killed for following Jesus. She said, I'm afraid I'm not strong enough for that if that happens in my life. And she said that to her dad. And her dad said this, tell me, um, Corrie, when you take a train trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, which is where they were from, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, he replied. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Today, you don't need the strength to be a martyr. But as soon as you're called upon for the honour of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. I took great comfort in my father's advice, she said. Later, I had to suffer for Jesus in a Nazi concentration camp. And he indeed gave me all the courage and power I needed. Just enough oil, just enough flour for the day. What's coming up in your life and it looks too big? You think, I can't cope if that happens. Here God is saying, trust me, I'm faithful and I won't let you down. I'll give you what you need at the moment for that day. God's provision is unwavering. The fourth thing we see here is God's paths are often unsettling. Verses 17 down to 24. What an amazing miracle that God's provided this flour and this oil just at the right time. But then there's this twist. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Here, this woman sees her son die. She trusted God. She was faithful to him. She showed more faith in God than his own people in Israel. And she wasn't living in Israel. And yet, this person who had nothing, her son dies. Now, what you can imagine, you can hear what she says. Verse 18, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sins in remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Are you doing this because of bad things I've done? So often we think like that, don't we, when, we, when bad things happen? Is this because of stuff I've done in the past? What's going on here? And Elijah himself um, he, when he prays to God in verse 20, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? God, what are you doing? What's going on? I just don't understand. This is confusing. See, the God who was provide, provided, this is how one writer puts it, the God who provides now perplexes. He blesses and then he baffles. Now, this is something that I'm sure many of us in this room, if you've if you're a Christian for any length of time, can relate to. That we ask that question, God, why? Why this? Why now? Sometimes we need to be careful because we think the right response is, oh, I can't ask that. I can't say, God, why? But we really need to realise the Bible gives us permission to say why lots. And throughout the Psalms, we see time and time again, the Psalms are saying, God, why are you doing this now? What's going on? We have permission to ask Why? But here we need to grasp that God's ways are often perplexing. They are strange. They're unsettling. God, what are you doing? And why are you doing this now? Now, we know the end of the story, as we'll come to it in a moment. But maybe you're in the situation now where something has really flummoxed you. God's ways are perplexing. It doesn't mean he's out of control. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. But he is still working his purposes out. We can trust him in the midst of our confusion. We will see time and time again in God's word, times where he does things, we think, what is going on? But he has a purpose for them, which we'll see in a moment. 
Hold on to God in your confusion and when things are um, unsettling. He's with you and for you and still working his purposes out. And there's hope at where it could end. So we've learned four things so far. God is never unprepared. God's ways are unexpected. God's provision is unwavering. God's paths are often unsettling. And the last thing briefly is this. God's power is unstoppable. God's power is unstoppable. This, um, if we look at verse 19 down to the end there. Here he says, give me your son. You know, this story doesn't end with despair. Elijah doesn't give up. He says, he gives, she has his son given to him and he takes him upstairs and he lies him on the bed and he stretched, verse 21, stretched himself on the child three times, cried out, Lord, let this child's life come in to him. He cries out in absolute desperation, showing his humility as he just lays down and says, God, I can't do this. Do it, God, work. And what happens? Verse 22 The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived him. The son's brought back to life. Another miracle. Here is somebody who the life had gone, but now God reaches down into death and brings him back. He gives hope in the darkness. Now, doesn't this show us the kind of God we've got? First of all, it shows us God hears us when we cry to him. The God who listens to our voice. But as well, a God who is bigger than death. And don't we see that ultimately in Jesus? Here is somebody who death overtakes him. You know, he dies, he descends. And yet, that's not the end. Because three days later, Jesus rises again, breaks the chains of death and says, look, if you follow me, you don't need to fear death. He is that, um, that needle that goes through the dark curtain. And the thread that is attached to the needle comes through the dark curtain as well because it's attached to it. If we are attached to Christ, trusting in him, we will be brought through the dark curtain of death so that we come out the other side. Death is not the end for those who trust in Jesus. He is bigger than death. Now, maybe today, if you're honest, you are fearing death. You're worried about what's to come. And you don't know where to turn. Well, there's only one person who's... Been, who, who's died and brought back to life um, and never died again, Jesus. You know, this boy here, he was brought back to life, but how much longer did he have? Oh, we don't know, 20, 30, 40. How many times could he be brought back from death? You know, eventually he would die. But Jesus died, rose again, and is still alive today in order to help us and pray for us and to one day return. He's bigger than death. So if you're scared of death, there's one person who can help you, and that's Jesus. Turn to him, the one who says, I will hold your hand and never let go. He's the one who can help us. Now, yes, we might be fearful of what happens after our death and how it happens, but Jesus again promises to be with us. All who trust in him will rise again. That's the assurance we have at the end of a a Christian's funeral, isn't it? This isn't the end. This is just the beginning. In one sense, the, instead of the, the, um, the body going into the ground, is like a seed being planted. It's not the end. It's actually the beginning of life forever with Jesus. So are you trusting in him? When we ask God, what are you doing? Where are you? We've got somebody who is working out all things for our good. One who has defeated death and who means that the darkness doesn't have to be dark ahead, but there is light at the end. There is hope that is unstoppable, just as power, God's power is unstoppable. So when we ask that question, God, what are you doing? 
Let's hold on to these truths to give us some bearing in all the confusion. God is never unprepared. God's ways are unexpected. His provision is unwavering. His paths are unsettling. And his power is unstoppable. Maybe today you need to trust in him for the first time. Just like that lady, the widow here, as she said, look, this is what God's word says, and she trusted. God's word today is saying to you, trust in me. Will you reach out in faith and say, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust in your son, the Lord Jesus, who died and gave his life for me. Let's pray before we sing our last song together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak into our lives and into our situations. And I pray, Lord, especially for anyone this morning who is crying out to you, God, where are you and what are you doing? Please, Lord, would you draw close today and help and encourage and strengthen them in their need. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.